Today's episode of the Ryan Russillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Um, not unpredictable that somebody would call the hotline, the snitch line down in Orlando on Dwight Howard for not wearing a mask. Um, that was one of the most. They, they took it off the board. You can bet on it. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. Today's plan, Willie McGinnis. Uh, we're going to talk to him on the Cam Newton topic, what he should expect from Belichick. And then Willie, who was drafted by Parcells, played for Pete Carroll. And then Belichick, who was um, obviously before his coordinator, but then him coming in as head coach. So we'll get to that. And you know some of the stuff uh, that he thought about Brady very early on, knowing that Bledsoe you know, was the number one pick in 93 and – McGinnis, I believe, was what, the fifth pick, fourth pick um, in 94. So uh, we'll do some of that. And then I have an open that I'm excited about. And we're not going to do any Dak Prescott stuff because, as we told you on this podcast last fall, Dak was offered in the neighborhood of four years, right around 140 million, 100 plus million guaranteed. It doesn't look like that offer changed much at all. Um, between the Zeke Elliott and the Dak Prescott contract topic amount of stuff, it's, it's, it's arguably some of the most boring content out there. Start, bench, cut, sucks. That's the dumbest shit going. But um, DAC updates, I get it right up to the deadline, but the story never really moved. It never really did anything. And it depends on what you believe. I mean, Jane Slater, NFL Network, who is uh, somebody that I trust a lot on the Cowboy stuff, seemed it. Well, didn't seem, but she was reporting basically like DAC last minute. There was a push, but they couldn't make it by the deadline. But the parameters of the deal, I don't really think ever changed from where it was last fall. And um, whether it was Dak betting on himself in a big way or betting on himself in a big way and then was willing to concede at the very end, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't I don't blame Dak for betting on himself a little bit, but some of that salary cap stuff that we talked about um, that I spent a lot of time on and kind of the projections and it goes up 10, 12 million every single year and here's where quarterbacks are going to be. And I even brought it back with some of the Mahomes stuff with his extension I don't know what's going to happen, at least in the short term, with some of the cap numbers. But being franchised back-to-back years is not a bad thing. It isn't. Uh, The franchise tag is terrible because it exists, but it's actually not terrible once executed for quarterbacks that want to bet on themselves. And, you know, most of the guys do stay healthy. So you can't just say, well, what if he gets hurt? And, like, odds are he's going to last most of the season. He's a really durable guy to begin with. And even if he is hurt and they think he's going to make a full recovery and he's their guy – uh, it's not like they would just move on from him anyway, you know, unless it was uh, like a devastating kind of injury that just doesn't really happen all that often. Although, because it still happens, people argue the exception. So we don't have any DAC stuff for you. We have some college football national title stuff for you, though. This week's Open is about claimed national championships in college football. I made a predictable Bama joke last week where I said, if Bama never gives up on the season and everyone else does, does that mean it's their 18th national title? Because Bama has 17 claimed ones, most of them very legitimate, but a few that are like, come on, man, are you serious? And by the way, the reason Bama gets this joke is because they have the most. And let's face it, this decade plus run by Saban, I don't know will ever be repeated by another coach at another program. Never's a long time, but five national titles in the mix for a few more and this kind of run every single year being in play for a national title. I mean, everybody has a down year and this guy just doesn't. And I can't imagine anybody else is going to do this anytime soon. So that's the problem for Bama fans is that you're going to be 
in the crosshairs of these kinds of jokes. But I remember the first time somebody explained this to me. They're like, do you not understand how the claim national championships work? I go, well, look, I'm from New England. I don't really get worked up about this stuff. They're like, no, go back and look at it. If you look at Wikipedia, they say that there are 22 different entities. And essentially, these are different publications, whether it's actual real voting media, the first versions of the coaches poll, or people that just like math that went back and retroactively handed out a bunch of titles. There's one guy that's a gemologist that was just super into college football, and these are recognized. I think Wikipedia recognizes 22 different places that are okay giving out national titles that actually count like it really exists out there. I've counted as high as 24. Who knows how many there are? So let's look at a few of Bama's to explain this whole thing and how it expands in bigger ways around college football's history. Bama's first disputed one, 1926, tied Stanford in the Rose Bowl. Bama finishes 9-0-1. Stanford finishes 10-0-1. There were 10 different things going on there as far as voting. A bunch of votes for Bama, four for Stanford. Michigan, Navy, and pesky Lafayette also. Lafayette just in the mix a bunch throughout this historical lesson. So you know what? That one's fine. That one checks out. 1930, 10-0 plus a Rose Bowl win. No problem for Bama on that one. 34, a little more controversial, 10-0 Rose Bowl victory, but NCA recognizes 8-0 Minnesota. Minnesota just haymaker in the field, mid-30s and early 40s. Minnesota has some real titles. They have a few, too, that they're like, there's a few Minnesota ones that are so bad, even Minnesota's like, you know what, we're not even going to claim those. So that one's in dispute, but not horrible. 1941, problem. Minnesota, the actual champion, recognized historically, but the Holgate system, don't know if you know about old Deke Holgate, WWII Air Force vet, USC, statistician, uh, seems like a hell of a guy, but he was like, no, my system says Bama at 9-2 and two is the champ. No one really seems to like that one except for the Bama SID that I think is at the root of all of this. 1964, Bama loses to Texas in the Orange Bowl, finishing 10-1, and but still the national title? Yes, because the media voting was done before the bowl games. So even though the NCAA recognizes Arkansas, Notre Dame, and Bama, they were like, wait, should we keep doing this? I mean, just think of not having the foresight to go, hey, is that ever going to screw us by voting for the national champion before the bowl games happen? Well, it could, but let's just wait until it actually happens, then fix it. And that's what the media did. And by the way, that is a harbinger. That's a big word. Not really, but 1965, 9-1-1. Bama beats Nebraska in the Orange Bowl. A bunch of votes for Bama, but more votes for Michigan State. So the NCAA just says, ah, whatever, co-champs. A lot of this stuff becomes, you think the geographical bias is bad now? It's off the charts historically. 1973, this one is very problematic for Bama fans. 11-1, but their loss was to Notre Dame in the Sugar Bowl. Bama won the coaches vote, which is the UP. It was the United Press thing, and the coaches poll has changed names a million times. But Notre Dame is recognized by the NCA in this one because they finish up 11-0 and beat Bama. Now, if you say as a Bama fan, hey, those are the rules, because they were voting. The coaches poll was voting before. They couldn't realize, hey, didn't a decade ago this stupid thing happened? Yeah. And guess what? They changed the process the year after this happened. And for any Bama fan that pushes back on this, how would you feel if uh, earlier this decade when Bama rolled Notre Dame and Miami, I was there. It was ugly. It's as ugly as any think, playoff or title game I've ever gone to. And um, you said, hey, yeah, nice win. But actually, before the game started, we all voted for the Irish to be national champs. So please recognize that. 1978, 11-1. Bama beats Penn State in the Sugar. I think I counted 24 different places that named champions <laughs> that year. Um Eight picked Oklahoma. The NCAA split it with USC and Bama, but the problem is that would never play out for Bama now in today because USC went to Birmingham and beat Bama by 10. 
and somehow they were co-champs by the NCAA. Now, is this all anti-Bama? No, it's anti-takes. What I realized was that all of these different entities, these publications, this is the origin of the shit hot take. It's like Skip Bayless just sat around and was like, let's go through a decade of history and handle out awful fucking titles left and right. Because that's what this feels like. Because, yes, I get that a lot of it is rooted in math and different things. But if your math says a team that's eight and three is the real national title winner over the 12 and 0 team, unless it's a team from like Lafayette's conference. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, hey, guess what? Sometimes your math is wrong, but sometimes math guys are so excited about their math, even when the answer staring in their face doesn't feel great. They're like, hey, math checks out. But here's the lesson. This isn't even anti-Bama. Princeton is off the charts. Like, if I were to just go through and recalculate this and take a couple back from Bama, you may have to take all of Princeton's. Princeton claims 28. Harvard only eight, by the way. 101 years for Harvard since their last title. Feeling like a bit of a drought there after a nice run in 1910, 12, 13, and 19. But Princeton claims 28 of these bad boys. It starts in 1869. Be patient. The home and home of Rutgers. The first college football game ever. That's at least what history says. It was just a bunch of guys. There were actually different sets of rules. There were Princeton rules, and they did better in that game than the London rules, I believe. So a one-on-one -one split with Rutgers, but scoring differential, the math goes in Princeton's favor. Let's give him a national title for 1869. N70, N72, N73, where they went 1-0, 1-0, 1-0. In 1874, they went 2-0, another title. 1875, 2-0, another title. 1877, 2-0-1. Another title, 1878, Princeton really scheduling it up out of conference, 6-0, and big win there, and they started expanding it. They had no coach in 1879. That's another title that happened again a little bit later on. They had 20 titles before 1900. Now, here's the best part. The Billingsley Report, another one of these publications, handed these titles out retroactively in the 60s. So we're like, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? I don't know. Do you want to give Princeton football 20 national titles? Let's get to work. When Princeton finds out, how does that go over? Do they have a meeting? Do they call guys and be like, well, they're all dead, so we can't have a reunion party? Good point. What about the 94 class? All right, I'll check. What was that? Lexus Nexus? I think that's what it's called. Uh, do you make shirts? I don't know. I don't think you do. But it just seems weird, and again, I understand that it was a different time and no one was really playing. There was one school called Stevens. Their last season was in 1924. That program, the school was run by Alexander Crombie Humphreys. If you see a picture of him, not a football guy. He was more of a water and gas plant guy, and he goes, look, we're getting smoked out here. They are the original Citadel. Right, the original FCS school, and they just said, we've had it with this. We can't hang because it was all these Ivy League schools and it was a bunch of smaller New England, New Jersey, New York State, these kinds of schools all over the place. And again, Lafayette, who I, I don't know why there were certain years where it'd be like LSU, I don't know, Navy, um, Alabama national title. And then some math guy would be like, yeah, actually Lafayette was another one of the champions there in 1925. Um, I may be lying about 1925. I've done a lot of research, but I don't want you going around saying, hey, do you guys remember that 25 Lafayette team? No, I'm sorry. That was Alabama, Dartmouth, and Michigan. They were all champs. Yeah, excuse me. 1926, Alabama, Lafayette, Michigan, Navy, Stanford, all recognized as national champs. Detroit, 
not the Pistons, Detroit, 1928, splitting with Virginia, excuse me, Georgia Tech and USC. Honestly, like some of these years where there's six titles, maybe you just say no to all of them. 1921, California, Cornell, Iowa, again, Lafayette, Vandy, and of course that Washington and Jefferson team led by Greasy Neal, they played their ball out at, uh, I believe, Cameron Stadium. Um, and who'd they beat? Bethany, Bucknell, West Virginia, Wesleyan, Carnegie Tech, Lehigh, Syracuse, Westminster. Uh, yeah, they went out the road there and started playing those schools. Some of these teams would just play like four at home and then eight on the road. And then Princeton would play like eight home games and one road game. So I don't know what to do with Princeton except kind of lean towards maybe you take all of them away. But again, that doesn't seem fair. But the Billingsley report deciding 60 to 80 years later, hey, here's a ton of titles. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Some schools are better than others when it comes to this. Nebraska actually is really good. Nebraska has a couple where they were like, no, you can have them. Minnesota has some real titles in there. They have a couple probably they could give back. But hell, it's Minnesota. When's the last time you go to Matt at Minnesota football? Although P.J. Fleck does bum some people out. So maybe that will turn back around. P.J. Fleck would definitely claim extra as I'm starting to think about it out loud right now. Um, you know, Michigan has... The scary thing about Michigan and their history, Michigan's got one since 1948, but most people think in 97 that Nebraska was the better football team. So if Michigan didn't have the 97 split, can you imagine Michigan football walking around like they do and going, your last one was really 1948? Maybe Michigan should just find some more. Maybe they should hire a new math guy from the Midwest to retroactively give them some more titles because Ohio State's actually pretty good at not claiming too much of this. Newt Rockney in 1926 asked a mathematician named Frank Dickinson, said, hey, could you go back and look at our 1924 undefeated season? Hey, Newt, it's Frank. Got good news. You guys are national title winners. Damn it. That's great news. Yeah, Nebraska, as I close with this, there was another entity called the NCF. And Nebraska, who finished 9-3 in 1981, they lost to Clemson in the Orange Bowl. That was an undefeated Clemson season where they're recognized as the AP and the UP, and that's the UPI at this point, as the national title winners. But somehow this Mike guy behind the NCF gave Nebraska, Clemson, Pittsburgh, SMU, and Texas, he recognized all of them as national champs because of the hypothetical of Clemson allegations. But Nebraska had three losses despite beating six ranked teams before their loss to Clemson. Like, don't you think that you might be wrong there? Now, I researched this, and the response was, well, with those allegations, you can't rule out a bunch of things. But then in 1993, the Florida State-Notre Dame season, where Notre Dame beat Florida State head-to-head and lost to BC because a UVM kicker transferred to Boston College to kick, the NCF gave Auburn a title, Florida State a title, Nebraska a title, who lost to Florida State at the end of the year, and then Notre Dame. I think the rule should be this. Is if you as a fan <laughs> look at the claim title that's staring you in the face and you go, this doesn't really make any sense, then don't print a shirt and don't claim the title. Before we get to William McGinnis, the Ryan Rosillo podcast is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. Look, there's a reason FanDuel is America's number one sports betting app. They've got all the odds on all the biggest sports. They make it simple and intuitive to place your bets. And at FanDuel, they believe that beating the spread is hard enough. So unlike other sports books, FanDuel doesn't make you jump through hoops when you want to withdraw your winnings. That's the deal here, man. I mean, I remember when I was younger and would do some of the online stuff and it would just sit there. It would sit there in the account and they'd be like, oh, we're processing your money into chips and then back to money. And you're just like, no, you're not. You just know that I'm going to bet another game because I'm sitting here. And with FanDuel, 
They hook you up. When you win, you get your money, okay? Because sports are finally starting to come back. Here's why you need to try FanDuel Sportsbook. Because online, you can bet on the UFC, golf, soccer, NASCAR, even the NBA and NHL. Now, if you're looking at the futures with the NBA and NHL, maybe even more so than the NHL, because I haven't loved some of the arguments of trying to find, as we've mentioned before, why are we picking all the teams that weren't as good as all the better teams to win because the circumstances are different, but the totals and the payouts, um, not totals as far as wins, but meaning the payouts and some of the odds on championship odds may be a little tastier here just because of what's going on and maybe even more so the NHL. So if you really know your hockey or you think you know your hockey, why not check out FanDuel and get online because it's easy to use, the fast payout, safe, secure, and legal, and have they have so many different ways for you to bet. And if you're new to FanDuel Sportsbook, you can even place your first bet risk-free. Seriously, just place any bet and you get up to $500 back if you don't win. Wait, what? As I'm reading this, I'm like, is this serious? Yes. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with my promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's R-Y-E-N. So they know that I sent you. Remember, that's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N, to get your first free bet. That's your first bet free. I can't believe I'm reading these words. Um, So just go ahead and do it. R-Y-E-N. Must be 21 or older. President in New Jersey. Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in West Virginia. Go to www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. 15 years in the NFL, Pro Bowl defensive and Willie McGinnis now with the NFL Network as an analyst and uh, a guy that I've followed for a long time living in that part of the country. I want to get to the Be the Change uh, program that you are part of with, with some other guys as well, Willie, and, and knowing how close you are to everything that's going on out here in Los Angeles. But um, because Cam's with New England, and I'm, I'm sure you've been asked different versions of this all the time, but you came in in 94, you go from Parcells, three years of Pete Carroll, and then Belichick. What was your first impression of Belichick once he became your head coach after, you know, you'd been in the league a bunch of years? Yeah, well, I had Belichick. Remember, he was the DB coach and assistant defensive coordinator um, when we went to the Super Bowl. And and he was a little different, of course, as an assistant than he was the head coach because he was in total control. Um, But I would say very smart, uh, very calculated, somebody who was – very dedicated to his job, um, who talk about preparation and the different things that you had to get ready. He was always making sure that um, there was no rock left unturned. Um, a little quiet, you know, a little, 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 little different as far as parcels, <laughs> talking about personality and the way he communicated, um, but still very effective. And I think that um, when you talk about Pete Carroll, too, the personalities are contrasted. They're totally different. So um, I just think Belichick was still figuring out and putting the pieces together. And when he became the head coach in Cleveland, um, he just started to assemble and things started to come together for him. And then when he came back um, to New England, um, he, was a, he, was, he was a football, like, mind. He was, like, one of those guys you're like, Where's all this stuff coming from? He has the foresight. He has the knowledge. Um, 
He knows how to assess talent. I can go down the line. And it was just, you can just see the making, you know, of, of what he is today. You know, I knew that, you know, with the relationship before, like coordinators are just going to treat you differently, especially like if it's your position, it's almost like they want to be your buddy more than they want to be your coach. Um, with Bill, like people were really anti it in town. I remember that. But then again, everybody thought like Pete Carroll was this terrible head coach. And yet we've now seen what he's become. So that was kind of weird. I mean, did you guys, when you had Pete, and it's impossible to follow somebody like Parcells, but did you in the moment feel like actually Pete's a really good coach? It's just not working out as the team kind of like slowly started going backwards record-wise. Well, you've got to remember that was Parcells' team. So all those guys on that team pretty much fit the personality and DNA of Parcells. He had brought in all his different guys from the Giants. He had a mix of guys that he drafted. I was one of those guys. Um, and the coaches that was on that staff. So all those players were pretty much – I would say use and condition to build ourselves. And then when Pete Carroll comes in, here's the guy with all this energy. Here's a guy that was always smiling. Um, his approach was different. Uh, the way he communicated was different. Everything was different. That didn't make him a bad coach. I think the problem with our team was that we had a lot of immature guys that took that for granted, that didn't really uh, think that he was – uh, effective or a good coach because of his approach and the way he communicated and the way he prepared in different things. And, you know, when you got uh, guys that are immature, when you've got guys that are not being professional that don't buy in, and then you got half the guys that buy into whatever leaders are in front of them, uh, it just makes it difficult to win. But Pete has always been a really good head coach. Um, of course, you see him now years later. He's still winning football games, still uh, being one of the best in the league and still doing things the exact same way. Of course, he's gotten better at it, but um, I just didn't think our locker room was ready, you know, for Pete Carroll at that time. And it was really hard, you know, in the moment because it's it's after, like I say, somebody like Parcells, but it's just it's one of the great turns turnarounds in, in coaching history to go like, Oh, you'd want Pete Carroll would be no further than fifth on your list of guys that you'd want to be the head coach of your team. And at the time, you know, that city being in Boston is like right. revolting every single day going, who is this guy? All right. So Bill comes in in 2000 and, and you mentioned that it was different as he was a head coach. Did you have any issues with him early on once he became the, cause you're this leader, you're part of this veteran crew. You've had this taste of success. You obviously haven't won a title. Did you have any issues, any pushback with him from the very beginning? No, I just knew that uh, he was going to do things a certain way. He made that clear. Uh, he identified a group of men on that team that was going to be the core and the foundation. Um, the Troy Browns, myself, um, the Lloyd Malloy's, the Teddy Brewskis, the Ted Johnson's, those type of guys that were the Ty Laws. He, he recognized that early. He had a conversation with us and told us what he expected out of us, uh, what he expected as a team, and how we were going to do it. I think that the great thing about Belichick is he explained and he laid out the blueprint of what this team should look like, how this team should play football games, the type of team he wanted, um, tough, physical, smart, um, accountable, and most importantly, he really emphasized team over individualism. And once all those things got in place and that was our cornerstone as a team and that was our foundation, um, he slowly just started to, to, to move guys in and out and, and, and bring those type of character guys and, and draft and bring free agents that fit um, with pretty much what the perception of the team would be 
and, you know, what he saw as the Patriots. And, man, 20-some-odd years later, I mean, look what's going on now. Yeah, I mean, it still is, it seems crazy after that first year for this to then be the next two decades. Were you, as somebody who comes in in 94, Drew comes in in 93, were you always on board with them going to Tom? Or were there any reservations with you and some of the older guys? Um, I would say the way our team was built at the time, the, the message and the way Belichick approached everything, um, how it was handled. Um, I was on board with making sure the defense was doing what we needed to do to hold up our end. Uh, Drew was injured, and he was injured for a number of games. So, you know, you know, in, in, in a physical sport, when somebody's not out there, the next guy coming in, um, has to do his job and ha- has to hold his own. Now, the only thing with that, remember, that same year, Drew signed for $100 million. Yeah. So in the back of our mind, we was like, Drew's not going anywhere. He's the franchise guy. He just, he just signed his blockbuster contract. He's the quarterback. Uh, no, I don't know what Belichick saw, uh, the foresight, uh, the ability to see what Tom was or what he was going to be. Um, but the way that this team transitioned behind Tom and played under Tom, um, <laughs> when we had that team meeting and Belichick said that he's staying with Tom and this is this is what what we are going forward when Drew got healthy, um, I think a lot of guys turned around and looked at each other and we shook our heads like, all right, let's go. Uh, he eliminated the distraction right off the top. Uh, there was no media circus about it. Um, there was some talk. Of course, we're human. You know, we see this sudden change, but we had started to play a certain way. We had started to perform a certain way. And, you know, he had the insight, man, and he, he, he had the vision. So um, we didn't question anything. You know, we were, we were, we were just working, and, and nobody knew Tom was going to be what he is today. No, that's, that's definitely... I can imagine some days you must have been like, is this dude really going to take over and run? Because Bill didn't really let him do a lot of stuff in the offense early on. I mean, it was your defense. Well, it was you, it wasn't like he was asking him to go back there and throw it. He didn't become that guy until years later in his career. And I think that's always something that's lost a little bit, especially with the game, the way the game played out offensively back then, too. It's like two different styles of game anyway. Yeah, it was different. I mean, we we were a tough football team. Our defense was, you know, what what was was the was the, the I would say our strong point at the time and our foundation. But I think with any young quarterback, when you're trying to develop and incorporate a system around him, the one thing you want to do is make sure he's in a good environment and that you're game planning things that cater to him and you slowly gradually build. Um, you see this with Russell Wilson his first year. And you see this with a lot of different quarterbacks their first year going into their second, third, and fourth year. Um, you don't want to overload them. You, you want them to take care of the football. You want them to have clean vision of what the goal is. You want them to go out there and play at a certain level. You don't want a whole lot of thinking. You want them to you know, take care of the football and do a lot of other things. So if you overload their plate and you don't know what the guy is right off the top, I think it was smart how they brought him along. And um, that – that wasn't saying anything negative about Tom, like he couldn't handle it or he wasn't that guy. It was just what we needed to do as a team um, to play complimentary football, to go out and compete and win at a high level. So what do you think Bill's going to do with Cam here if Cam ends up being the starter, which I think most of us assume will happen if he's healthy? 
Well, I think Cam's in a great situation. I think Bill has a lot of respect for Cam and what he's done over the years, especially uh, when he's played against the Patriots. I think he's 2-0, one of the few quarterbacks yes, yeah. in the league that has, you know, a winning record. And I think if Cam is healthy and at 100% and has the right mindset, the sky's the limit. Um, I don't think we'll see a lot of gimmicky, crazy plays, but where the game is today and all the things that when you look at Cam, the intangibles that he offers as a player at the quarterback position, strong arm, can throw the ball down the field. He's proven that he can make those plays in the air. Uh, his feet definitely being 250, 260, a big quarterback that can run, that's physical. Um, where the game is today, moving the pocket, uh, the RPOs, the boots, the sprint plays, getting out of the pocket, keeping defenses off balance. I think Josh McDaniels, who is the architect of this offense, is going to have a field day because he's so versatile that as a defensive coordinator, you really don't know what to prepare for. You really don't know what you're going to see. And when they run the ball effectively with all the running backs and, you know, the tight end position, you saw them go out and get tight ends and, and Edelman, everybody will have a role. And the one thing with the Patriots already is the game plan changes from week to week. Now you put in a guy like Cam um, and you say, okay, what am I going to see this week? How are we going to use him this week? Like, where are they going to attack this week and how? And I think Cam gives you that ability to do a lot of different things. If he comes in, has the right mindset, he buys in and he listens. Those coaches are proven. They know what they're doing. And the one thing that that staff is probably better than any staff for the last, like I said, 20-something years. It's putting guys in position to play at a high level and cater to their strengths and hide their weaknesses. Do you think there's a part of Bill that can't wait to see what happens this year without Tom? You know, I don't think it's about Tom. I think Bill has always been, you know, one of those guys that after a win, after a loss, after something happens, move forward. And, you know, make it about the guys that are in that locker room or that are on that, that football field now. Um, they've had great history together. They've won a lot of football games together. I know they have uh, a family, love-hate type of relationship, like all family members do, that spend years and years together. But I think they've had a lot of success, and there's a lot of respect on both ends, coach and player. Uh, and I think that they both are excited to see, you know, what they can do without one another. I just think that's being a competitor. I think that's being competitive and, and, and having belief in yourself and your ability, whether it's a player or a coach, to say, um, I got a different opportunity. I'm in a different place now. And as players, we want to prove to the team that we're not with anymore. I left, remember, I went to Cleveland. I wanted to prove to the Patriots that I still had it and I could still play at a high level. Coaches sometimes, when they lose certain players and they get criticized about it, especially probably the best quarterback to ever do it ever, um, they also have goals. And they also, those competitive juices come out of them where they want to show that they can still move on and win games and play at a certain level or change things so dramatically that they're refacing that offense. They're going to change a bunch of things, and you're going to see how the game is changing. Same with them. They have to change and incorporate those things. So I think there's excitement from both parties, coaching and player, to show that they're still 
uh, uh, pretty relevant and still can play at a high level and have success without one another. Did I, say I know that, that was I politically correct on that. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a way I could turn that title into something that would get you in trouble, but I, I'm not going to do that to you because <laughs> it's not you. I think what you're doing is you're explaining a lot of the stuff that I think anybody that's been around it for a while right. knows that, you know, I, I'm sure Tom's still pissed off. He's not there. And, you know, I'm sure Bill would would say I could cite about 10 different numbers the last two years that would say it's time for me to move on. But I'm not going to do that to you because, you know, he's just he's just not going to say any of that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I'm not. I guess I'm always going to be a little surprised that Tom's not there because no other franchise would have done this to a Tom Brady, but it's kind of the most predictable thing ever that the Patriots would say, yes, yeah, okay, you can, you can go move on and do something else. And now Cam Newton's a million bucks. And I think it's a great fit for both guys if he's ready to go. Um, so yeah, I, I you haven't said anything right that I would disagree with. Um, I did want to get to this. You mentioned Julian Edelman and I know you're working with him on the be the change program. Uh, what are you guys doing to get together and, and really get people involved and in making sure they get out and vote this fall? Well, Julius, he's a great friend of mine, man. And, and if you look at his post lately, um, he's always trying to be the change and create change and do the right things and bring people together. And um, he's helping us out. Uh, be the change is a campaign that we're, we're, we're dealing with. I teamed up with Legends um, Apparel and After Leisure Wear. And be the change is when you look at all the players and what they're talking about, using their platforms, whether it's protesting, whether it's marching, whatever they're doing to try to create that change. The biggest change is going out to vote. And players have a huge platform, and a lot of people listen, and a lot of young people don't go out and vote. So be the change right now. This initial campaign is a collection of superstar athletes, entertainers, um, Snoop Dogg's involved in this, the Black Music Coalition is involved in this, different organizations in the NFL, uh, NBA, uh, MLS, uh, NHL, they're all guys are coming in just to put on a hoodie and say, I support being the change and go out and vote if you want to be the change. And the reason why that we're creating these hoodies is when people come out to register to vote, we're going to give them a hoodie. You know, people like free stuff. And they do. Gear, from Legends? Yeah, from Legends. So It's you know, good stuff it, too, yeah. It, it is good stuff. So, you know, um, for everybody at these events, when it's COVID, you know, it's COVID uh, ready, um, we're going to give out hoodies to people who come out to register to vote just to support these players, man, and all these huge voices that we have um, and, and telling people, if you really want to make that change, you got you to go out and do something. You can do a lot of talking, but voting and, and, and actually getting um, with law enforcement and getting with community leaders and talking uh, with the people in the communities the leaders and, 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 and the Congress women and men and, 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 and the political leaders and actually doing something is, is what's going to make the change. You can follow Willie stuff. It's at Willie McGinnis for both Instagram and Twitter. And uh, of course you'll see him on NFL network as well. And Ryan, could I just say like, they, you can, you can go to, to legends, um, mm -hmm. legendsbrand.com, or you can go to at legends and DM them. Uh, we'll have the hoodies up pretty soon. Um, all the all the hoodies that people buy, we're going to take that money and just pour it into into these events that we're doing to get people out there, put it right back into the people to get them out there and give away the hoodies. If you come to register, you'll get a hoodie. There you go. I mean, and again, I know I see Willie and some of the guys from Legends that have all this gear all the time. This stuff is uh, stuff, but obviously it's it's a much better cause than just the hoodie as well. Thanks, Ron. 
And on those hoodies, uh, make sure, again, you check out the legendsbrand.com and uh, on Instagram as well, at Legends. Okay, uh, let's do one life advice before we call it a week. They say money can't buy happiness. Look at the fucking smile on my face. Ear to ear, baby. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house on the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Uh, this is George, and he's overseas. He said I can use his name, um, but not his full name. I don't think anybody would know. Uh, eh, whatever. It doesn't matter. But we're going to keep it at George. All right? So, I'm 25. I'm in England. I've been doing my teacher training this year, and I've been hanging out with a girl on the course, yeah, a little language barrier here for all of us here in the state, state side on this. So I imagine he's in some course for becoming a teacher and there's a girl that he's hanging out with. Okay. Since January. All right. You know what? We got that. All right. Month seven. We're both placed in the same school for our placements, but it was a pretty convenient deal for both of us having similar schedules. She's always had a boyfriend throughout this, but that didn't really bother me. Hmm. Sure. I wonder if it bothered the guy. Not really an issue as this is just a casual arrangement and he lives in the next town over. I've now got my first teaching job after qualifying and I had my induction this week via Zoom and I was assigned my mentor to work alongside next year. Sticky situation is my mentor is the boyfriend of the girl I've been hooking up with for six months. Whoa. He seems a decent enough dude and is keen to meet up over the summer for a few beers before we start working together. Uh, and we've been exchanging texts. Oh my God. At some point I'll have to hang out with him outside of work. I haven't yet told the girl that I'm now working with her boyfriend. What's my play here? Stop hanging out with the girl in case he finds out, stay silent and hope he never finds out. My friend says I should confront the issue, but I think that's more harmful. Okay. Uh, wow. Wow. Okay. The first observation from this email is you don't, you don't even mention the girl really. Uh, so I, my guess is you don't really care about her that much. We could make you seem like an, uh, like a bad guy, but that probably makes this less problematic. Like you didn't mention that you care about her. You, you, it seems like if this ended tomorrow, you'd be fine. Um, and yeah, this is really weird. Like the mentor, uh, I don't know, like I would hate you if I'm him. So here's, here's what you, here's the, here's the delicate part of this. Um, the first option to just keep hanging out with her while she's dating your mentor is the is the worst option. Just don't do that. Like don't be don't be a dick. Um I would I would probably physically assault you if I were the mentor and you were doing that to me and I would lose my career but I, I it would be worth it for at least 30 minutes. So I yeah, don't don't do that to another guy. And I, you know, like the, there's some guys out there that just don't care at all. Like it's like whatever, dude. Um, I never quite get that, like the guys that sort of got off on the idea of hanging out with a girl that already had a boyfriend. And then sometimes like guys that as soon as the girl like didn't have a boyfriend, the girl, the, the guy would lose interest. Like somehow the, the challenge wasn't as great. So, uh, the guys that are wired that way, um, I've, I've really, you know, you guys can all kind of collectively go fuck yourselves. So the other part, you always got to think like, if you were the mentor, how would you feel now? <laughs> You know, if you've had that happen to you where a group of people know something that's going on and you don't know, and then maybe you find out like a year later, it sucks. It's an awful, awful feeling. And maybe you're too young enough or too young to to even 
process that. Um, you seem pretty self-centered on this whole thing, and and maybe that's that's good. I, I think the second part of this, um, I would just end it with the girl and be like, hey, I'm not going to keep hooking up with you while, like, this is your career, okay? This is, I imagine you care about your career, or maybe you don't, I don't know. Um, I don't think you should just want to do this to other people. And I'm not doing this to pander to the audience. I just think it's kind of shitty to do. And I don't think you care about the girl at all. So if you were in love with her and wanted to be with her long term, then maybe you would have to go to her and say, hey, I want to be with you and then go to the school thing and go, hey, this this weird kind of personal thing came up and I don't want this guy to be my mentor or just turn it around. But like, I, I also don't think you want to break it off with the girl and then tell the guy either. Like he's not your friend. So I know I'm, I'm kind of throwing a bunch of different things at you here. All right. So let me just recap here as I'm thinking out loud. Don't keep dating her and have this guy be your mentor by screwing him over because you're going to end up being around this guy all the time. And that's just not cool. Option two, if you do actually care about her and you care more about her than you do this guy being your mentor, then you guys are all going to have to have a real, real difficult conversation. But you also don't want to jam up your career path here or look like a jerk in whatever program you're in and, and maybe have that. I don't know if any of that's applicable or if they would just assign you another mentor and say, all right, keep it moving. People date and things happen. Um, but if you're not going to stay with her, which you shouldn't while this guy is your mentor, I don't know how the hell, unless you're the smoothest Ferris Bueller dude of all time, how you're going to navigate that where you could be like, Hey, look, just a quick thing about me. I've been hooking up with your girlfriend this whole time, but I can't wait to get this mentor mentee thing started up. So we're done, but let's start cracking the books. Um, because that guy's never, ever going to look at you any differently than the guy that was hooking up with his girlfriend the whole time. And most guys don't like that. So there you go. That's my advice. Okay. If you want any life advice, stateside or not, the email life advice rr at gmail.com. Everybody be safe this weekend and we will talk to you next week.